Good morning, David. Morning. How are we doing? I was just doing, uh, you know, wide awake or at least semi-wide awake. As Chris and I always say, nice thing about radio, you only have to sound awake. You don't have to look awake. But uh, I think my brain's in pretty good shape this morning. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Sent the wife off to a wedding, and me and the boy got it all together this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got hunting season. You got football. You got plenty of things to keep a guy occupied, that's for sure. Yes, sir. I got a question for you. I had these uh, beautiful cherry tomatoes. Man, they grew and grew and grew, and finally they sprouted. And Well, I only got like four tomatoes out of all these plants. I put a fertilizer on there, good soil, compost. I don't try to figure out exactly what I did wrong. How much How much sunlight have you got them growing in? Full sun, all day long. Absolutely full sun. And uh, do you recall what varieties you planted? Mm, no, sir, I do not. I did buy them from your store, but, you know, I, it, I've well, grown them if, before. If, if, we, if we had them, they're going to be the better varieties. Right. Did you get blooms and no fruit, or did you just fail to get blooms? I got lots of blooms. And finally, after a while, after it grew tall enough, I guess, you know, it sprouted the tomato. And I had my one little tomato. Man, it was good. I ate it right off the vine. And these were cherry but, tomatoes? Yes, sir. That's most unusual. About the only thing, uh, you know, and and sunlight's the most common problem I see, but if yours were out in full sun and weren't producing, the only thing I can tell you that would account for that would just be a lack of phosphorus because, you know, plants have to have a certain amount of phosphorus to set fruit. It's not like the more phosphorus you have, the more fruit you get. It's sort of an all-or-nothing thing, and... um, we normally recommend that when you get ready to plant your tomatoes, you get some of the stuff called rock phosphate. It's a powder material. When you blend it into the soil, it gets chemically tied up to where the plants can't get to it. So the way you use it, you dig the hole in the ground and you just put a big glob of this. Just put a big handful of it in the bottom of the hole and set your tomato right down on top of it and let your little tomato grow its roots down through the rock phosphate and and things grew well you got nice big plants you just weren't setting any fruit right it's got to be a phosphate deficiency then because uh, cherry tomatoes <clears throat> big tomatoes the problem so often is that uh night temperatures aren't right a lot of people wait and plant them too late and then don't get much production but t- cherry tomatoes don't pay that much attention to it so I only way I could account for not getting a you know plenty of fruit would just be your soil's just um, out of balance as far as having plenty of nitrogen for growth but not enough phosphorus for setting fruit. So that's the you know one thing that I would recommend changing. And and rock phosphate, you like to say, just it's never going to burn. You want your plants to grow their roots right down through it. And that'll make certain that they've uh, that they've got all the phosphate they need to set fruit. Now, tomatoes are not pollinated by insects, so we can't say it's a lack of bees or anything else. Um, sometimes, and gosh, it seems like we you know we always have plenty of wind, but what they do where they're growing these things inside. Uh, greenhouses and places where they don't have natural wind to blow that pollen around, they're growing them either in cages, they're growing up a up a stake or up a string or something like that, and they yeah. go along every day and they give it a good shake. My friend and mentor, Alton Grimm, told me about going into one of these places. They had like a pipe frame up 
close to the ceiling, and then they had their lines going down that they were literally growing their tomatoes, you know, up those lines, tying them to it in effect. And he said somebody would walk in that greenhouse first thing in the morning every morning with a baseball bat and just whack that metal frame three or four times to shake the plants good to get that pollen moving around. So I guess that's one other thing that, you know, you could try. Are you growing them in cages? Are you growing them on stakes? How are you How are you growing them? Well, you've never been outside H-E-B and seen see one of those big concrete balls? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well. I work on heavy equipment, and I got uh-huh. I was fixing one, and I asked him if I could have a ball. So I brought it home, swung it from my crane, had a little fun with it, but I put that <laughs> down on the ground. I took a brake drum and turned it upside down off a truck. It's been sitting out in the yard for years, uh-huh. and it took, a, it took a whole sack of uh, dirt to fill that up. Uh-huh. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but it's it's up, it's exposed, it's in direct sunlight. It's right next to my, my hose bib, so it always gets water, you know. Okay, well, now, you know, one other problem, although it's more a problem with the fruit after it's set, is staying too wet. Tomatoes like to stay on the dry side. So, right. um, but, uh, I, you know, about all I can tell you, if you've got that full sun, if you've got reasonable soil, is increase the phosphorus level in the soil and when they are up and growing, you know, give them a good shake. Do go out every now and then and just, uh, you know, tap whatever means you are using to keep them supported. And uh, just be sure you're getting what happens is the pollen falls from the male part of the flower to the female part of the flower. That's how pollination occurs, and um, that's where you get fruit. But, man, I don't I don't hear anything wrong with anything you've done. So about all I can come up with would be would be just not enough phosphate in the soil to uh, to set the fruit, you've got the flower, so you've got, uh, you know, you've got what you need there, and all you have to do is be sure those flowers get pollinated. But if there's just not enough phosphate there, then the pollination just doesn't take, so to speak. So I'm going to tell you next time around, how, how many plants total did you plant? Uh, that one was I think three, three inside that, and then I had two cages, and they all crawled up it nice. Okay, and, and all of them the same thing. Lots of lots of flowers, but no fruit. Yeah, it's well, just right there at the end. I got fruit, but then it froze. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and what time of year did you plant them? Oh, God, a while ago, beginning of the summer. Um, like May or June, something like that. Probably June. Okay. Yes, sir. Next time, next season, get them started early. Try to get them started around March or April. But um, I, all I can tell you is I think if you get that layer of phosphate in there, I just don't see any other reason they shouldn't be setting fruit. Uh, because if if one plant was not setting and the others were, then I'd, you know, suspect something wrong with the plant. But where you've got right. five or six plants and they're all doing the same thing, that's the only thing on earth I can account for them not, not setting fruit because you should have been picking, you know, you know, several cups of tomatoes every day. Probably should have been picking a quart a day off five plants. So uh, stock up on rock phosphate, plant a little earlier, and um, I think next season will be a whole lot better for you. Well, my Serrano peppers did the same thing, but my bell peppers, they yeah. were gangbusters, all in the same soil. Well, <laughs> I uh, you know, peppers, again, uh, they there's a, there are a lot of different things that contribute to pollination, whether or not they set fruit. Bells are one of those 
plants that uh, they typically produce best early and late. But I do the same thing. I I think you've just, if anything, your soil's got more fertilizer than it really needs in it, but just doesn't have all the nutrients it needs. And uh, I, the only thing I can come up with, and I've grown tomatoes, uh, gosh, I started with my grandfather about when I was about five years old, and I don't want to talk about how many years ago that was because it's been a while. But lack of phosphate would be the only thing I could tell you that would keep those things from setting fruit. All right. One, one quick more question. Yes, sir. Blue bonnets. Too late to plant them or just wait till next year? Um, are you going to plant them in an area that you can water them? Yes, sir. Then I think you could probably get away with planting them. The, the thing is, blue bonnets have... They're what we call biennials. They have two different stages of growth in their life cycle. The first stage, they, you know, make that little rosette of leaves. It's close to the ground. And then the second stage is where they bolt up and and produce the blue bonnet flowers that we're all waiting for in the spring. And if you were just scattering them out in a field, you would have to be sure that we got enough moisture to them for them to sprout because, you know, Texas, we could go for six weeks without rain now. But if uh, they are in a place that you can water them, I would say go ahead and put your seed out. If you don't get rain uh, at least once a week, in fact, the first two or three weeks, I'd be watering a couple of times a week just to get that seed sprouted and started growing. We've still got two months through two and a half months time for them to grow that rosette of leaves so they can come up and flower later in the spring. So if you can provide them the moisture to get them up and growing, I think you should do okay even planting them this late. If you just throw them out in the field, it's just hit or miss whether Mother Nature is going to give you the moisture for them to make that first stage of growth. So, yeah, I uh, um, you just, you're, you're going to need to water to get them started, but uh, I think you've probably still got time to get some blue bonnets next spring. All right. Thank you very much, Bob. Well, it's always good to talk to you. And uh, you keep in touch with me next season on these tomatoes. I want to I want to see them in the ground by the 1st of April for sure, uh, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. But I want next year to make up for what didn't happen this year. I want you to be complaining that you can't give away all the tomatoes you're growing. So let's stay in touch on this one. I will. Thank you very much. You're welcome, David. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, Robert's the only person I've got waiting, so if you'd like to be up right after Robert, you know the number to dial, 210-599-5555. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Good morning, morning sir. Bob. Good morning. All righty. Uh, wish I was at the blind right now, but I'm heading to work. <laughs> what is it they say? Work is the curse of the drinking class. Uh, a little, uh, yeah, that's about the way it is. Well, you see where I'm sitting this morning, and I'll tell you one thing, I'm a lot warmer than I would be sitting out in a deer blind this morning, but, uh, oh, listen, it's, uh, yeah. I installed a, uh, a water softener last year, uh-huh. myself, and, and there was a drain line that comes out, and I didn't notice it last year, but this, this year, anywhere I put that water line, for the regenerate for the water right when he drained uh it's kind of killing a little bit of that grass oh it's, what should i yeah it uh what you're what you're flushing out of that softener when it goes through its recharge cycle is basically salt water basically seawater and uh right. that'll you know that'll kill your grass long term that'll kill your plants short term so that um you you need to do one of two things and i don't know 
you know, a, whether your water softener is set up for it, but you can either switch to, you know, uh, what you're putting in your water softener, sodium chloride. You can put potassium chloride in, and by the way, it's better for you, better for your heart, but if your water softener will work on potassium chloride, it's a little bit more expensive, but uh, the water won't be so toxic. Otherwise, you're going to need to either flush that or, or put your drain line off the water softener, you know, somewhere that is not going to be hitting the root system of your plants. That may be down the drain. That may be, um, you know, out out into the street or wherever. But salt water is is deadly to plants. Salt water will kill plants. In biblical times, that's how people vanquished their enemies. They plowed salt into their fields. Their enemy couldn't grow anything, so they had to move on. So, yeah, you're right. just looking at uh, uh, just too much sodium in the water out there. And like I say, either replace that sodium with potassium or you redirect that water somewhere else. Potassium uh, uh, pallet. Yeah, That's potassium chloride pellet, pellets. You can normally get them wherever you get your. I think even the grocery stores are carrying. Like I say, they're they're more expensive. But if your water softener is like mine, I don't have to add salt very often, so it's not a very big deal. Yeah, no, mine. I have to do it because it's a, you know it's kind of do it yourselfer from one of the big uh, box stores. So, okay, uh, it's working great. But I just I don't want to be like I said. It's kind of weird. I I didn't see it last year when I installed it, but yeah. Out here lately, I've been seeing it. We're like, oh, and I can move. I can move my water, my water drain line. I can move it where I want to. Yeah, well, about six. Yeah, minutes. run it down the street or down the storm sewer or you know um, <laughs> anywhere but on your plants because salt water is one of those things. It doesn't kill them the first time they get it, but that salt is building up in your soil. And things will just continue to get worse rather than turn around. What you need to do is just redirect that line and then. Uh, uh, pray for a couple of good flooding rains this, this winter to, to flush all that salt out of the soil. But that, that's all you're looking at, and it's just a simple matter of taking that water somewhere else. Thank you so much, Rob. I appreciate it, and uh, I really enjoy your show in the morning. Well, I appreciate you listening, and uh, good luck on maybe having something more fun to do than going to work tomorrow morning or sometime soon, Robert. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, you know, weather's just going to get prettier and prettier. We're having a good week coming up, so uh, I hope, you, hope you're not spending it all at work. Thank you so much. You guys have a great day, and God bless. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, it's going to be Sue and then Julie. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I want to know, I have some, uh, Medina has to grow liquid plant food. Okay. I believe the number is 612-6. Okay. Um, I want to know, can I use that on my St. Augustine lawn? You certainly can. Now, does the bottle say has to grow plant or has to grow lawn? It says plant. Okay. Yeah. The plant is just fine on anything on earth that you want to put it on, including your lawn. Um, These has to grow lawn has to go on your lawn grass only. Don't ask me how many tomato plants I damaged when I got the two of them mixed up one time. But has to grow plant can go anywhere. Has to grow lawn is for the grass only. I will tell you that it is not the most efficient way to fertilize your grass. It's, it's a great thing to do, but if you're using a liquid fertilizer of any kind, you probably ought to be using it about once a month. 
If you were to use something like Medina's Grow and Green pellets on your grass, you'd only have to do that about every three or four months. So Hasbro Plant is going to run you a little bit more money and it's going to take more of your time, but it is just fine on your grass. It'll make your grass grow beautifully. Okay. It's just that I had extra and my plants are doing okay, but my my lawn is kind of weak. Well, I would... I would tell you the Hasgrove plant will work just fine on it. But um, at some point, get a little bit of the uh, Hasgrove, what they call their growing green lawn food, because it has more different things in there. Your your Hasgrove plant has plenty of the basics. The 6126, of course, is 6% nitrogen, 12% phosphorus, 6% potassium. Uh And and Stuart puts all kinds of good things in Hasgrove plant. But the dry product has more green sand, has more humates, has more things in it that are really going to support your grass. Uh, if you want to use a liquid, be sure you're doing it about once a month or so. But if you have plenty of it, I uh-huh. think you will, you're not going to see a lot of change until your grass starts coming out in the spring. But let me tell you what, use that Hestro plant at the recommended rate monthly between now and March. Um, you're going to see a lot better grass next spring. Oh, okay, okay. And then um, if I put compost on, is there a best time of the year to use compost <laughs> and a worst time of the year to use compost or just any time? Well, you don't put compost out when it's super hot. When the night, when the daytime temperatures start getting up in the 90s, um, uh-huh. and that's fine. I don't want to be out spreading compost anyway when it gets yeah, that hot. Yeah. <laughs> but, I understand uh, that. Yeah, uh-huh. other than that, no, there's there's no time. If I were to pick the, or no bad time, if I were uh-huh. to pick the best times, uh, it would be probably around 1st of October. It's just as the weather starts to cool down. If you choose to make a second application in the spring, it'd probably be, uh, in February, um, just about the time the grass is getting ready to come out. Your golf courses, they actually do it about eight times a year, but they put down just a thin, thin, thin layer. And uh, so I ideally, you know, twice a year, very few people get around to doing that. Once a year is good. Once your grass is in real good shape, even every other year is going to help. But do use a good organic uh, compost, and, I mean, this afternoon would be a great time to put it out. Okay. And I'm using the liquid molasses. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, that's to treat the soil more than it's a fertilizer. Exactly. Now, some of the molasses products have some fertilizer quality to them, but the main thing your molasses does is stimulate the soil microbes, which in turn free up more nutrients and build organic material for the soil. So, uh, yeah, molasses is great, but it doesn't replace the fertilizer. It doesn't replace the compost in any way. Okay, and then how often, ideally, should I use the molasses? How good is your soil? Is your soil really hard, packed? Um, is it just crappy yes. soil? Okay. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, <laughs> do it. Do it every yeah. six weeks if that's uh, oh, wow. you know in the in the time frame and in the budget. Um, uh-huh. Once your soil is in good shape, I I I like to fertilize the beginning of every season. I like to fertilize spring, summer, fall, and winter, and I just try to do it about the time that those seasons begin. Um, ideally, if you did the same thing with your molasses, but when you're starting out, when you're starting out with really bad soil, uh-huh. you can do it every month or six weeks. It's you know kind of like if you're into a bodybuilding program or something like that. You're through that, go through that phase where you really want to kickstart things to get them going, and then after that, you kind of back off on some of the things you're doing, and that's yeah. sort of what you're doing with your landscape. Okay. Um, 
Okay, that's very good information. Thanks so much. Appreciate, Appreciate the it. call. You have a wonderful weekend, Sue. Thank yeah, you. I will. Uh-huh, Certainly. Thanks. Bye. All right, let's talk to Julie. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm out. Good morning. Can you hear me? Just fine, loud and clear. Okay, awesome. Okay, I'm out in the Pipe Creek area out okay. of 16. Yeah. And we have uh, some fruit trees, peaches, and pears and plums. And I can't remember, um, you talked about some spray that you can spray them um, to keep the insects off them and and all that. Well, do you are you know there there are two different things that can happen. You can have insects that could bother the tree, and um, you know that's what we would treat for right now. And then you have a second group of insects that you know you could get after the fruit itself, worms getting into the fruit and things like that. So. You know, in general, the thing that bothers fruit trees more than anything else, the trees themselves, is a something called fruit tree scale. Uh, looks kind of like white cottony stuff uh, grows on, well, looks like it grows on the bark. It's actually colonies of these insects. And if you are seeing uh, the fruit tree scale on there, this would be the time of year that you would treat either using an oil spray or something like the spinosad soap. But um, I'm going to tell you, it's not real common. I think I've only seen fruit tree scale on my peach trees, oh, on average, maybe once every 10 years, I'll have a little bit of it show up, especially following a real dry summer. So I'm not real sure that you need to do anything right now unless you actually see this little kind of fuzzy white buildup on the trunks uh, and limbs of the trees. Now, keeping or preventing the things that get into the fruit, that's something we're going to do a little bit later. I find that just a good layer of mulch, which it would be good to do any time during the winter, two, three inches of mulch over the root zone of your trees, and you're not likely to have any insects in the fruit. But you, any time the next two, three months, uh, would be good to put mulch around the trees. But like I say, the only reason I'd be spraying the trees themselves would be if you had fruit tree scale. And um, I kind of doubt you're going to see much of that in Pipe Creek. Well, uh, we our peaches had a lot of problems with um, some insect, you know, ants and things like that, um, eating on the peaches, getting holes in them. And- Tell me how the foliage looks on, on your peaches and plums. Is it a good, vibrant green color, and do the trees seem to put on plenty of foliage and growth every year? Oh, yes. They look real good. It's just every peach has um, a bunch of holes in it, where and the ants will come out and... Sure. Yeah, it's different kind of bugs that just, yeah, there isn't hardly one that, that isn't got a bug in it. <laughs> and that's very frustrating as, uh, as much as as good as they taste and as much as you like them. How big is your, your orchard area where you have your peaches and plums and pears and things? Oh, um, well, my husband's planted them kind of sporadically around the property, but... Um, so this one, actually, this one peach tree is right in the front area, um, 
it actually uh, someone else lived there, older lady, okay, and she okay. throwed out her stuff out and it started growing, and we let it grow. So okay, well, my my reason for asking is if it's not a huge area, one thing that I would suggest is sometime midwinter, um, I would consider putting out some of the beneficial nematodes. Um, this will pretty much take care of any problem. I'm sure most all the ants you're seeing are fire ants, and I don't ever want to just kill out all the fire ants everywhere because they help in controlling ticks and some other kind of nasty things out there. But um, I would suggest putting out beneficial nematodes. It's going to do two things. It's going to control the ants, and it's going to control the larval state of a lot of the different things that are overwintering in the ground that want to come up and make those holes in your peaches and, you know, cause other problems. So I would tell you sometime in January or early February, if you would, and if it's, if they're not in a discreet area, if you would just treat in the area around the base, say, you know, 20 feet out from the base of the trees, if you're going to treat around individual trees, I think your beneficial nematodes will take care of the ants and take care of a number of the other problems. Now, one, one of the most common things we see making holes in fruit are birds. And that's a whole other subject, trying to keep the mockingbirds especially away because they're not dumb. They they love that fresh, juicy, sweet peach. And they're just, you know, they're, you can try things to frighten birds away from them. They have a, uh, they call it a scare tape, T-A-P-E. It's, um, oh, it just, it, it reflects light in a hundred different colors you you buy it by the foot and it's just pennies a foot and you hang streamers of this out in the trees and it really is fairly effective at keeping the birds out of the trees and it's a whole lot easier than trying to put netting over the trees or something like that but um yeah a, a lot of the problems with holes in the fruit come from birds now you can also get some boars you can also get some insects that will do that but uh again the beneficial nematodes will take care of a lot of those i find just mulching around the trees i don't have nearly as many problems as i used to have before i before i started mulching my fruit trees fairly heavily and whatever you're doing keep up the fertilizing because that's you know uh especially in your not so good soil uh if you're getting real good growth and trees that look good you're doing a real good job on the fertilizer but i'm going to tell you the beneficial nematodes in the winter and a layer of mulch around your trees anytime you can do that those are the two things that are going to help you um, get better fruit production and as far as protecting the fruit you might visit a nature store uh, there's a good one called little nature store in bernie or maybe wild birds unlimited here in san antonio that will have some different ways that you can try to keep the birds out of your trees because that's always one of my biggest problems with peaches and things other than things like raccoons and possums and other things want to come steal the fruit but where are you getting holes in the fruit birds are quite often the uh the culprit there well it's like uh when the holes are when i get the holes they'll have like this little crusty mm -hmm. clear stuff um right. i don't know if that's from the bug or that's or and if if you're getting what looked like little drops of sap and it's a very tiny hole then that can easily be one of the insects, and like I say, the beneficial nematodes will go a long way toward stopping that. The other 
thing after the fruit is set. You don't want to do any spraying until the fruit is set because uh, even organic pesticides can be cause problem for bees. So after your fruit is set, there's a product out there called Spinosad Soap. Uh, very inexpensive, totally safe for you, totally organic and non-toxic. But uh, when your peaches are about the size of little marbles, if you'll spray with the spinosad soap, that will uh, avoid a lot of the problems you can have as the peaches get bigger. Okay. Well, I appreciate you. Well, you let me know how things turn out next spring, and uh, always good to talk to you. <laughs> get out and have a good weekend and a good Thanksgiving. Okay, thank you. You too. Thank Bye-bye. you, Julie. Bye. All right, uh, next we're going to talk to Suzanne, and then you can be up first after that. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Uh, it's just going to be a, It's going to be the day we deserve, kind of like yesterday. Early in the week was not very good weather for gardeners, but Mother Nature looks like next three or four days are going to be great days to get out and get things done. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to a little sunshine myself. Um, I have got the same old problem I've had for years. Uh, I have cut ants. Uh-huh. Um, I live in the country. Uh, in the past, I, I have been battling them on two different properties for over 10 years. In the past, I tried the uh, concoction that Sandy came up right. with at Sandy Oaks. It, you're right. And I had limited success with that. I would say very limited. Um, since since I've moved to this property, I have used wettable sulfur around the entrance holes to the mm-hmm. underground dens and then watered it in. Um, again, with limited success, I'm not sure that I'm actually getting them. Eventually, they just move. Um so I'm wondering, is there anything else I can do? They, their entrance hole this time is right outside my veg garden. Okay. And they have they've managed to slay three different plantings of broccoli and cauliflower. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will tell you, I've had I have one caller who has said that he had really good luck just flooding them out, and um, that's something that I've never tried. But he said he's just I mean, absolutely saturated the mound a couple of times, and the ants packed up and went on. That might be one thing you would try, since it's certainly within the reach of your garden hose. The other thing about the sulfur, the way to use the sulfur is not really to put it around the entrance holes, but to put it over the top of the mound. And then the sulfur that you use is this material they call wettable sulfur, so that it goes down through. Because what the sulfur does, sulfur is not really that harmful to ants or anything else, but sulfur is a pretty good fungicide. And as you know, those ants are not actually eating the leaves and things that they're cutting off your plants. They actually store those, they take those leaves down and put them like a big storage room underground. And then what the ant actually eats is the fungus that grows on those leaves. And so by putting the sulfur over the top of the mound, letting it soak down into the mound, the sulfur kills the fungus. It's what the ants actually eat. And that's what tends to uh, many times eliminate the colony. But 
you're you may get a little bit of it tracked in if you put it out around the openings into the mound but it's not going to be nearly as effective as like i say spreading five or ten pounds and sulfur sheep but just spread it over the top of the mound let it saturate that whole you know little area underneath where the ants are in effect growing that fungus and that has the potential to run them off but if it were me probably the first thing i would try would just be taking the hose out there, poking it down into the mound, and just see if you can just flood the ants out and see if that helps. Because, like I say, I have a uh, have had one caller that said that's all he had to do, and the ants packed up and left and went somewhere else. And that would be a pretty easy solution if that would do it. If not, um, I would try the sulfur, or maybe in addition try the sulfur, but not just at the entrance. It's just all the way over the top of the whole mound. I thank you for saying that. I I misspoke when I told you I was going to put it around the entrance. Uh-huh. What I've done in the past is gone at about five, six feet radius okay. all around that and got the whole area, Okay, which is why I, I have a treasure trove of sulfur waiting for me <laughs> in the shed. Well, I would do it again, and, and remember, what you're doing is trying to kill the fungus that the ants are eating. But uh, hey, if and, and and again, I'm bl- knocking on wood here. Most of the places that I see cut ants are out around my property, well away from my garden. So I haven't really had to fight them the way you and so many other people do. But if flooding them out works, you know that's certainly worth a try if you've got the water to do it, and um, um, you're just you're going to be doing th- good things for the soil and all. But uh, you might try that and see if that gives you any results. Well, I can also get the double whammy go if I try flooding them first. I'm getting the soil nice and wet. Then I go ahead and put the wettable sulfur on top and sprinkle, and then I've got, you know, goo. That's Self-rise goo. Yep. At any rate. Hit them, hit them with both barrels. It. Yeah, get them with both barrels of the shotgun, so to speak. This is just very discouraging. So, um, Oh, by the way, I do have a little thing to report. You asked me to get back to you. Yeah, uh, I planted those uh, fava beans. Yes, um, variety is Windsor, I think. Okay, and they have come through. I've had five nights now, six nights below twenty-eight degrees. Uh huh. They look great. Really? They look great. I had no idea that fava little, beans were that cold hardy. They actually look a little bit better than the snow peas. <laughs> so go go figure. I mean. <laughs> Well, beans have a tougher leaf. That's one thing I have to say about snow peas. In addition to that tender, you know, wonderful pod that they produce for us, um, the foliage is pretty tender, and the cold winds are what really are hard on those. Beans tend to have a tougher leaf. I just did not realize that fava would take would take that much uh, frost without damage. So I'm. I'm going to visit with Howard Garrett about that, see what, see if he's ever grown fava beans. Sounds yeah, like something that. I need to get in the garden. Right, do that. In fact, we've had two nights that have been 25 yeah. degrees. Um, it, you know, it, it's cold early here, and mm-hmm. it's not going to improve until getting towards <laughs> Easter. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, we put up with that because we, we have at least 10 beautiful days every fall and maybe 20 beautiful days every spring. And for some reason, we think that's worth putting up with a cold winter and a hot summer, but I still wouldn't trade it. 
No, me either. Hey, thanks for talking with me. Well, it's always a pleasure. You know, and it's uh, it's it's doesn't really help on vegetable plantings and things. But if the cut ants are ever going after trees or things like that, that tanglefoot works real well on a plant that has a single trunk. So um, that's something you can do if you ever have a problem with them getting into fruit trees or other things like that. But uh, I'll, and and once again, I've uh, made a note to ask Howard if he's got anything new on cut ants because they're just an ongoing problem. And you know, they cause us problems in our vegetable gardens, but over in East Texas, uh, the paper industry, plywood industry, things like that, where they are constantly replanting uh, little pine seedlings, and the cut ants are just devastating on those. So they're they're a multi-million dollar problem over there. So let me, uh, let me ask Howard if he's uh, come up with anything new. In the meantime, the double whammy of water and sulfur, get back to me and let me know that how, how that works for you. I sure will. Thanks a lot. Always a Have pleasure, a Suzanne. Day. You do the same, and thank you. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Good morning, Bill. Hey, how you doing, Bob? Can I'm, you hear me? I hear you loud and clear this time. Good to talk to you. How can I help today? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Just fine. Okay. I only have one question. Okay. The uh, Myers lemon tree I have is about three and a half, four feet tall, or it was. It blew over uh, in, in, in the thing, and I just saw it yesterday. It's laying the ground, uh, almost on the ground, about a 15, 20-degree angle. Uh, the, uh, excuse me, the uh, leaves are all nice dark green and anything. No sign of any frost or freezing. I, I live in northwest San Antonio inside 1604 in Vanderbilt. Okay. Um uh, I've got some four-foot-long uh, rebar that I can put in close to it. I did not have it covered with insulate. Okay. But it looks great. I'm going to – I just saw this yesterday because I haven't been outside in this cold <laughs> I don't blame you. So so your virus limit is planted in the ground. Uh, so I was – I loosened the soil up. Yeah, the, okay. The trunk is not broken. Okay. It's about an inch and a quarter, inch and a half. Wow. So I've got a four-foot piece of rebar, and I'm going to, when since it's going to be nice and warm, uh, I'm going to go out there and kind of loosen the soil. My soil is loose because I use a lot of compost. Well, don't get carried so. away with loosening it because you don't want to break up the roots at all. Um I would see if you can simply straighten that tree back up, if not all the way to a right angle. But what I would do rather than, you know, trying to trying to put a bar down in and tying it to it, I would just kind of try to brace the tree up, maybe with a couple of pieces of rebar. You want to, uh, you know, put something, you know, piece of garden hose or something. You don't want that rubbing against the tree. You don't want it to rub the bark off. But I, I don't really think staking a tree 
is going to be the the total answer to it. If you do wind up staking it, attach it very loosely uh, because you want that trunk to be able to move back and forth a little bit because that's how you develop a really strong trunk on the tree. But if it were me, I would, you know, I'd try to I'd try to find a way to kind of brace it up rather than tie it up. And uh, it just was a combination of a little bit of rain, a lot of wind. And um, yeah, there, there are an awful lot of things that got pushed around by that. But uh, um, I would imagine that if the soil was loose enough that that tree could, in effect, bend over like that, you'll be able to straighten it back up. But just be careful with doing too much uh, digging around in the soil trying to loosen it because you sure don't want to break up the root system of that lemon tree. If it's that big, it's got a pretty good root system. And I think if you just basically get it propped back up, it's going to be fine. Well, I was thinking about wrapping it with several pieces of insulate and pulling it up like that and then putting in a piece of rebar. You can do uh, that, but I wouldn't. I, yeah, I wouldn't go too many layers of insulate because one or two layers of insulate, you're still going to get enough light through the insulate that you can leave it on for an extended period of time. But if you make it too thick, you don't want to be blocking out all the sunlight. And insulate's fairly strong material. I just go one or two layers of it, but no, that'd work fine. That'll work fine and put your uh, rebar in, you know, some distance away from the trunk. I think that, that should well, work I fine for you. I wasn't going to put it right next to the trunk. Yeah. No, I, I think that'll work fine for you, Bill. Okay. Thanks, Bob. That's the only thing I have to do, talk about today. Well, I'm glad you don't have any other problems going on. You get out and have a good weekend, and uh, we'll talk again. And let me bring up, uh, let's see here, Mike's going to be up next. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. How you be this morning? You know, it's just uh, uh, it heavy frost at my house again this morning, so it's just a little too darn cold for me. But I, it's just this cold's getting started early this year. I don't know whether that means it's going to be a colder than average winter. I don't know that it really means anything at all, except that I'd a lot rather wake up when it's forty-five degrees than when it's thirty degrees. So other than that, I'm great. But I'm ready for some sunshine. Oh boy. What a pansy. <laughs> Admittedly. You don't, know what, you don't know what cold is, Bob. Oh, listen, I've been to Wyoming in the winter. I know what cold is. But, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. May- yeah, uh, 32 degrees is actually hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, I've stood out ice fishing, you know, in shirt sleeves when it was 6 degrees. But uh, the combination of cold and wet is just a whole lot harder on the on the body than than just cold is so yeah i'll go along oh, with yeah. you and you've you've seen some you know you, you've done enough cowboying to know what a real winter can look like out in the mountains oh, yes, but sir. uh yes, sir. i tell you i think the coldest i've ever been in my life was on a uh spring break field trip to port aransas with the biology department years ago that that cold wind and wet let me tell you what it'll it'll chill you yeah it'll uh cut you like a knife yes sir well, what's going um, on in your world i got a question you know this uh japanese plant that's taken over the southeast coast over there i think it's called a kurdus or something like that the vine the kudzu yeah yep. what, what how, what's it how, how do you pronounce that kudzu k-u-d-z-u Kud, yeah kudzu yeah so it is a vine that was going to be part of my question mm-hmm. uh i gather you would call it an invasive plant <laughs> it's beyond invasive uh 
Quite a few years ago, I lived in East Tennessee when I was in high school, and let me tell you, there's there are parts of the southeast that it just the roadsides just you drive for miles, and it's just smothering yeah. things on either side of the road. I did a little research one time with a group from Oak Ridge National Laboratories, uh, and they were they we were working with an area near a copper smelter where the copper fumes had killed almost all of the vegetation and they were actually looking at this as probably the closest thing they'd ever see to a nuclear blast site and we were interested in what kinds of plants would regrow in that kind of a situation that was just totally denuded of vegetation and guess what the number one plant was (laughs) that blasted kudzu and i don't i don't know of any useful use for that plant i'm just glad that we're and we're pretty much too dry for it here in texas but you get over there in uh, mississippi alabama tennessee even on over toward the east coast even further than that they've got the moisture that it just thrives on and yes thank goodness that is not one of the invasive species we deal with here um it, then along the same lines, um, you know these ivy plants, uh, or I guess, I guess it's a vine also, that people plant up next to their like cement block walls or their mm-hmm. houses, you know? Yeah. Um, that is a vine also, correct? Well, it, to me, ivy and vine are just sort of interchangeable terms. Um, there are many, many different things that would fall in that category, Some of them actually make little root-like structures. Some of them produce what are called tendrils that help them to attach to whatever they grow on. And others, they just attach by wrapping around. So, yeah, call them vines, call them ivies. Some Uh of them, like English ivy and fig ivy, actually attach themselves to the surface. Other things like, uh, oh, golly, just, uh, you know, some of your different vines like Confederate jasmine, tangerine beauty cross vine, things like that. Those either wrap around things to stay up or they produce this little structure called a tendril. I guess a grapevine is another one like that. doesn't really attach itself, but it puts out this special little kind of lasso that wraps around anything it can hang on to. So, yeah, there are lots Um, of different lots of different mechanisms there. I think I think this is a fig ivy. Uh, my okay. next door neighbor planted it up against my cement block wall. And, yeah, uh, I consider it. And I might be off a little bit, but tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. I consider it to be invasive because it's coming over to my side, <laughs> and apparently it throws down some good sized roots also. Oh yeah. Yeah. So would you would you categorize it as an invasive? Uh, well, it's kind of like my old horticulture teacher to find a weed is a plant in the wrong place. Um, uh, fig ivy is not invasive in that it doesn't make seeds that just come up everywhere. Fig ivy is propagated almost exclusively from cuttings. And while it is, I would consider it more perhaps an overly vigorous grower. Um, (laughs) things that I consider invasive are things that are spread around by the birds, things where their Uh seeds blow through the wind, uh, things like, you know, some of the things that grow along creeks and rivers, like tallows, that all the seed washes downstream and just comes up every 10 feet along the bank. That's more uh-huh. of what I think of as being an invasive species. Okay. What you have is a vine that is becoming a nuisance because it's growing somewhere you don't want it. So, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's invading uh-huh. your okay. space, but it wouldn't fall so into my definition. Like- so it's kind of like you say neither and I say neither. I would say that's a pretty good analogy. Okay. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I'm getting into a spinning contest with this neighbor, and I sprayed some uh, weed killer on it. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know, just on on my side, and and you know, I guess the stuff spreads a little bit on its own. And he claimed uh, the wind blew it over onto his uh, lime tree and, and affected some of his leaves on his tree. But his dang lime tree right now—that was back in the summer—and <laughs> it, and it looks his lime tree looks a whole lot better than mine. Let me tell you. So oh, well. Um, yeah, it's uh, the fig ivy doesn't actually hurt. You know, it it uh, doesn't do damage to mortar or brick or things the way that some other things might. But uh, it does, you know, like you say, it does grow quite vigorously. And uh, I it, the the bad thing about it is when you pull it off, it leaves these little brown things behind. Yes. You almost yes. have to sandblast it to get rid yes. of it. But yes. um it's yeah it it it's doing you know it's doing what it how it gets it's by we we planted some along a concrete wall in front of the nursery when they built this retaining wall when they developed the property next door and at one point it is spread almost 100 feet along that fence you know back toward a greenhouse but we just get out there and pull it off and cut it off if it gets out of hand but uh, one thing that you know you could do the vinegar and orange oil will kill the foliage on it but it's not going to kill the root system, and if uh-huh, it blows uh-huh. a little bit, it's not going to do severe damage to a lime tree or anything else. Okay. So okay. It's, uh, uh, I tell you, the the only real harm that I have seen is a number of years ago, we had a super cold winter, froze the foliage on the uh, fig ivy growing up the sides of buildings, and the fire department considered it a real fire hazard. There was an apartment fire where... Uh, for however it happened, a fire got started outside the building, and it spread up through the dead foliage up the side of the building yes. and did considerable yes. damage. But in I general, I'm going to call it a nuisance and not a not a real severe threat to anything or anybody. Okay, Doc Bob, I appreciate your uh, knowledge all the time. <laughs> that that's my insight on it. And um, is it growing over the top of the fence and down onto your property, yes. or yes. how? Yes. And- yeah, it came down, you know, all the way down to the ground, and it's it's got uh, some incredible roots. Well, that it does, it, and and unfortunately, you let it get a get ahead of you before you decided that it didn't need to grow on that fence. But, yes. Uh, uh, you, your pruning shears, and like I say, if you need to burn the foliage back, that vinegar and orange oil is a very safe way to do that. It will burn okay. the foliage, and you won't have to worry about it getting through the soil or anything like that onto your neighbor's right. property. but Fantastic. Where where it's gotten that established, you're going to need a pair of gloves and uh, a good deal of energy to get it totally under yes. control. In a in a pick. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank you, Bob. You're sure welcome, Mike. Thank you. All right. Let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. And uh, like I say, Paul's the only person I have waiting. So if you've been getting a busy signal, be a good time to dial. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, I had uh, some vincas planted uh, in my front uh, little flower bed. Okay. Um, is it safe to assume, obviously, the frost got them? Um, <laughs> those aren't going to come back next year, right? Well, they sometimes make seed and come back that way. But, no, your vincas are just like mine, and just like mine, yours need to go in the compost pile because they uh, they totally froze out. I had 26 degrees one morning, and that was the end of the vincas. So, yeah, those plants are not coming back like say they might make seed you might have them re-sprout and grow next spring but uh it's not going to be from the big plants it would be totally new plants coming up okay and then uh like five or six weeks ago my wife was at costco and they had tulips and 
those other bulbs, those really fragrant ones. Um, hyacinth? Yes, hyacinth. Okay. Um, so she bought a bag of each. When is the ideal time to plant those? Are those, I mean, are those even going to thrive down here? <laughs> they're going to grow and they're going to flower and they're not going to thrive. But uh, they'll, they will be pretty, you know, at least one season. The hyacinths, and I'm like you, I love the fragrance of hyacinths. And they may actually come back for a couple of years. But our problem in, you know, here in, I guess you'd call us almost the deep south, is that we don't have enough cold weather to put those bulbs back into dormancy so that they will bloom again next year. As a one-time thing, they are beautiful, but I almost consider them annuals. Like I say, the hyacinths may come back for two or three years, but the tulips, it'd be very rare to have them come back for more than one season. But now, on the other hand, you know, most of us go out and buy cut flowers every now and then, and we know they're not going to last more than a week or two, so... Uh, if you just love tulips, nothing wrong with planting them. I would not plant them quite yet. I would probably plant them when the soils have had a chance to cool down a little bit more. Normally, December is when we think about planting tulips or hyacinths. And um, just expect them uh, to come up and bloom typically in February. And after they have bloomed, that's when you want to leave the foliage on them as long as possible. You want to let them rebuild the bulb as much as possible. And like I say, the hyacinths can, if you take good care of them, they come back from maybe two or three years over the next couple of years. But tulips, even the best tulips out there, it would be rare for them to last more than one year. Okay, dokie. So we're looking at uh, maybe another month or so before we plant those? That's what I would say. Now, if the weather stays chilly, and we're actually supposed to be back up in the 70s uh, over the next few days, so um, if if we had a, one of these falls where it just gets cold early and stays cold, I would tell you plant them any time. And I am recommending right now for planting uh, oh things like your daffodils and narcissus and things like that, but Tulips and hyacinths, I'm going to wait probably two or three weeks before I put them in the ground. Perfect. And then um, my uh, <clears throat> lantana that uh, got taken out by the frost, wait till like February, clip that back, and that one will come back and get big and beautiful again? It should come back and get big and beautiful. It is just dead tissue, so there's no reason to leave it there all winter. If it's frozen back, to me it'd look a lot nicer to cut it back. I'd put a little mulch over the you know plant after you cut it back just to protect it if in case we do have more and potentially severe cold but once that tissue is frozen no reason not to cut it off and make things look a little bit uh neater shall we say for the winter months okay sounds great bobo i really appreciate your help sounds and, like you uh, don't have too much work to do out there today so get out and enjoy it yeah, I already got my broccoli, my cauliflower, my Brussels sprouts. I mean, my, my winter garden is, is fun good. I think I'm almost close to cutting my first uh, crop of kohlrabis. That's so. outstanding. We'll keep up the good work. Onions should be in next week, and uh, there'll be some more things for you to plant out there. But uh, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. And uh, like I say, give up on the periwinkles. Cut back the lantana when you like, and uh, maybe plant some pansies or cyclamen or something like that that'll give you color all winter long where those uh where those other things are frozen back yeah i had a landscaper give me uh two flats of um violas so yeah. that's my uh that's my job for this weekend i'm gonna go plant some violas and some pansies so. work, a, work a little uh fertilizer into the soil when you do and they will reward you every day of the winter paul 
Perfect. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Let's get straight back to the phone lines. Hector, Michael, and James. And Hector's up first. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Morning, Hector. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself this morning? I'm doing good. Just getting off of work. And uh, I was listening to your show, and uh, I have an issue with my grass in the front yard. I had a beautiful yard of grass. And uh, it's all of a sudden it's just started dying on me. And uh, I, t- I went to Home Depot, showed them some pictures, and they said that I they thought I had a fungus. So I treated it with a Bayer product that they gave me. Okay. And it, it didn't help. It continued to die. I lost the whole yard, and I have nothing but dirt now. And it was lush. It was it was beautiful beautiful yard. And I'm thinking that I'm gonna go ahead and just plant grass again, but. Uh, I'm guessing that I have grub worms, and do I need to do something to the dirt or to the yard now before I plant grass? Okay. Well, two or three quick things. Don't ever go to Home Depot for gardening advice. Maybe for lumber or plumbing, but they, well, that's not their specialty. And I stay strictly away from toxic chemicals, which is what Bayer specializes in. If it was a fungus... You could control it very easily with nothing more than whole ground cornmeal, which grows uh, a beneficial fungus called trichoderma. If it is grub worms, then, you know, we control those with beneficial nematodes. But it almost, you would need to find a good nursery, and you probably need to take them a little sample of your grass to tell what the problem was. Uh, But to answer your question, no, I'd be more worried about the toxic stuff you put down. Anything that was in the soil... Um, is there's not really anything you can do to control it, and the grubs are going to be gone. You know, they're going to, uh, they may still be there, but they're well beyond their feeding stage. Your question right now is, do you want to have instant green lawn all winter long, which means planting something like annual ryegrass that's going to be beautiful for the next several months and then putting your permanent grass in in the spring, or do you want to resod right now? You know, at this point, if your grass is is going to have to be replaced uh there are just a lot of things to consider uh first of all it's a great time to think if you want to have the same amount of grass you had before or if maybe you'd like to do a little less mowing and watering uh you may have some areas you'd rather put in some hardscape or put in um you know raised beds flower beds things like that but your, your choices to avoid mud this winter you can buy sod there are no permanent grasses you can put out from seed bermuda grass is uh the one grass that can be planted from seed but it can't go out until the weather gets hot next spring so your choice is either going to be to put out sod which you know is a lot of work a little bit expensive but it can be done this time of year what many people would do is plant the inexpensive one of these ryegrass or ryegrass blends. You always want the dwarf forms. You don't want to plant that old Oregon ryegrass. It's just a real mess. But if you'd like to just have a green lawn for the winter and give you a little time to think about what you want to replant in the way of grass, I would look for, um, you know, again, for a dwarf ryegrass. We are especially fond of a dwarf ryegrass blend that is called Pantera, P-A-N-T-E-R-R-A. And literally, you can have a beautiful green lawn in a couple of weeks if you were to put that out now. And um, was your was your yard St. Augustine, was it Bermuda? What kind of grass did you have originally out there? 
it was St. Augustine. Okay. If, you know, if you replant St. Augustine, and I still think St. Augustine is probably the best grass out there. I just don't think we should have huge expanses of it. But if it, you know, starts to have even a slight problem, dig up a little small square of it and take to a good nursery and let them look and see. The The basic way to tell the difference between grub worms, which is what it could have been, or brown patch, which I think is much less likely, but with grub worms, if you go out and lift up on a leaf blade, the whole runner comes up because the grubs have cut the roots underneath. With brown patch, which is uh, it's a little more common fungus, it shows up in the fall, the runner stays down, but the grass blade pulls away, and it has what looks like a little rotten spot at the bottom. One of the main reasons that I don't think you had a fungus is that brown patch never kills 100% of the grass. It may kill 90% of it, but it usually leaves enough good green grass out there that your grass will come back uh, and take a little while to spread and fill in in the spring. But if it's if the grass is just totally dead everywhere, it probably was grub worm problems. If you were to dig around, you would probably find some grubs out there, but the grubs that you're finding are well beyond their feeding stage there's not really anything you have to do about the grubs if you want to put down some beneficial nematodes it means you will have fewer grub worms or fewer uh, june bugs next spring but you're still going to have plenty of them around from your neighbors and other places so i think your problem was probably grubs and uh whether you treat or not is totally up to you. It's it's not really going to affect what you do. If you want to replant St. Augustine, you can do it now. I would, if I put out St. Augustine this time of year, I would definitely follow it up with a little bit of cornmeal, just to be sure you don't get any brown patch problems started. And of course, all the all the usual precautions, you know, uh, still hold. You need to get the grass. You need to plant it same day. You need to be sure you use one of these water-fillable rollers to push it down very tightly against the soil. But, I mean, if you if you want to put St. Augustine back down, just, you know, have enough friends to help you that you could do it all in one day. Um, if you want to view this as an opportunity to maybe do some different things with your, your yard, uh, for just a very few dollars, you could put out one of the dwarf rye grasses, which is all going to die out as the weather gets hot next spring. And by that time, you you may be thinking about doing something different. Probably overall a little bit better time to put out sod in the spring than in the fall, but it can be done now if you want to. Okay, well, your answer really answered a lot of questions. Well, and always when you have a problem... You know, many times the 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 problem is down, in fact, virtually always the problem is down at soil level. And while a picture may give you an overall view, it'd be difficult for anybody. It's like taking a picture and, and sending it to your doctor and saying, what do I have? You got the, he doesn't know whether you have the flu or the cold or something worse. You know, he really needs to see the patient. And, and as a nurseryman, I will tell you, I would want to see a little chunkier grass to really figure out what's going wrong. And I certainly wouldn't be selling you a lot of toxic chemicals to put on it, no matter what it was. Yeah, but like right now, it is just dirt. It, well, there is not runners or anything on it well if you want if you want green grass in a week or two 
the inexpensive way is to get some of the dwarf ryegrass seed, put it out, water it, and it sprouts almost overnight. Um, if you want to go to the expense of putting out sod, it's a little bit harder to find, but I I would be dishonest to tell you you can't do it this time of the year. But if it were my yard, and I've got some muddy spots in my yard, basically where I've been doing some work, I'll be planting the winter rye for now, and then I'll be putting my other grass in come about March or April. Okay, well, I think I think I'll try that winter rye. I've never I've never done that, but I think I'll try that and then see what happens. It's thing. easy, it's inexpensive, and it's almost overnight green and uh, no more mud. So let me know what you decide, and if you have more questions, I'm always here to help you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Hector. Bye. All right, orders changed a little bit. James is going to be up next, then it's going to be Beverly, and then it's going to be Max. So uh, let me push that button right there and say good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? You know, I'm a little chilly again this morning. We had pretty heavy frost. I had a text from my business partner. She had 25 at her house uh, this morning. So uh, this cold spell, is um, it's it's come a little early and stayed a little long, but it looks like we're going to warm up and have a beautiful stretch of weather for the next few days. Yeah, everything's working out out here. We've got some uh, uh, field peas planted for uh-huh. cover crops and then got... Uh, three-quarter inches of rain on it, so that's always good. <laughs> You're living right somehow. Uh, just uh, make enough mistakes, you end up knowing a few things to do right. You just try not to make the same mistake twice. Do you use the winter peas, or what kind of uh, what kind of uh, legume crop are you planting? It's just a field pea I get from Johnny's. Okay. Um, if you got a big spread... Uh, Douglas King's got them down there for uh, $30, $40 a sack. Yeah. And do you inoculate your seed, or you uh, do you feel like that's important? You've planted, I'm sure, the same thing in this area for several years. Do you inoculate every year, or do you figure you've got enough of the of the uh, bacteria still out in the soil? Yeah, uh, this is the way it works. We use the Earthway planter, uh-huh. the push planter. Yeah. And you put your peas in there, and then you sprinkle just a little bit of your uh, rhizobia yeah. on top of it and go uh, until you run out of either one. <laughs> Very good. Um, I picked up uh, a girdling knife the other day. Mm-hmm. It's a little two-bladed chisel-looking outfit. Right. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, right. The peach tree guys used to use them uh, many years ago, and I don't know. They might still be using them for all I know. But they're they're using them for grafting purposes. They're obviously not not wanting to intentionally girdle a tree to uh, to do it in. I want to girdle trees to do them in. Yeah. Is the reason I got the knife. Sure. Uh, I'm sharpening it up, getting it ready, starting to practice with it. On the hackberries... Um, where do I, I put the girdling ring on those? It 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 cuts about a quarter inch deep and about a half inch wide. I would go as close to the ground as you can because the closer you get to the ground, the less likely the tree is to try to re-sprout, um, you know, before the girdling action actually kills the tree. I would, uh, and, you know, half an inch wide, 
sometimes, you know, that tree can bridge that little gap. I probably would, uh, you know, try to go around it a couple of times, uh, try to get an area that you've girdled for at least an inch or so wide. But I would get as close to the ground as you conveniently can. Okay, uh, one ring will do it, or you can't do like you say you can't widen it up you right i i probably make a ring i'd probably make two rings as close together as you can manage to do it i know you've got to get to have something that supports that knife as you go around the tree but i do two rings as close together as you can get them okay and that uh, this time of the year is or really any time of the year is 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 going to be all right for girdling oh absolutely because what you're doing is cutting off, of course, the nutrient supply to the roots. The center core of the tree, the xylem, takes water from the roots to the top, and your, your trees, even after you girdle them, they're going to sprout out in the spring. They're going to look fantastic because the top of the tree, basically all it needs is sunlight and water to carry on photosynthesis and you know its, its normal processes. But since the roots can't make their own nutrition they rely on what comes down from the leaves through the phloem which is the outer tissue uh the leaves in effect send that down to the roots and what you do when you girdle you're removing the phloem layer so all of a sudden the roots have no food supply and the tree's going to look fine until the roots run out of nutrient and then they're just going to fold up and die because there is no substitute for those carbohydrates that are manufactured in the leaves and the tree doesn't know it's dead until the roots run out of nutrients that's why you can't just cut the tree off because it'll just sprout out again you girdle it so that you have starved the root system but that may take up to a year's time but when the tree dies it dies completely and doesn't come back i've got a lot of trees that i want to kill that are uh, too close other trees to use diesel on them. Sure. Those are the ones I wanted to girdle. Well, girdling girdling requires patience, but girdling is far better than diesel or anything else because you're not putting anything, you're not using anything toxic. You're letting Mother Nature kill it. That's the way our forefathers cleared land uh, all those years ago. It's just that it it takes many times, takes a year before the things die, and a lot of people that you know they'll girdle this time of year, and then when that tree sprouts out beautifully, and they'll in the spring they'll say, well, gosh, that didn't do any good, uh, but it just takes time because obviously the roots aren't using a whole lot of that stored carbohydrate right now, so they need to go through at least a part of the growing season before they before they starve to death, so to speak. So girdling is always the best way, but not everyone is patient enough to do it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start uh, sharpening my knife and getting some work done, <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll try to see if we can get rid of a few of these trees. Very good. So How I are all your... Co- about go ahead. What you said last week, I was thinking about it all week long, and I think you're right. Those uh, those folks that leave those pig ears on those uh, uh, butts when they cut with a chainsaw, right? They're not much of a woodcutter. I'm with you 100 percent on that. It leads uh, oh. to many problems long term. So, how are your coal crops doing? Uh, things growing well for you? Yes, yes, they are. We're finally starting to get rain, and uh, the the broccoli's looking real good. Uh, everything's coming up roses, man. It's, <laughs> it's we're finally getting some rain. Cover crops are up. Uh, 
uh, looked like uh, the man there is green as uh, Dublin on St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't get much greener than that, James. Well, listen, you have a great weekend, and uh, we'll probably talk before then, but if we don't, I'll week out, I'll or actually 10 days out, I'll wish you a happy Thanksgiving and uh, tell you how much we appreciate you. Yes, sir. Happy holidays to all you uh, folks. Thank you, James. We'll talk again. All right. Let's get back to the phone lines, and Beverly's up first. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning. Good morning. To talk vegetables okay. this morning. In particular, the beneficial piles that you place prior to planting. Right. I am adding a handful of rock phosphate, a half a cup of dry fertilizer, a small bucket of compost. Should I be adding sugar to this? I don't really think think so and i would uh i would not be putting the rock phosphate on your your pile that you're making there before you plant um okay. the the sugar is optional i tend uh-huh. to and of course i use molasses as a sugar source but i like that um and if you want to put a little dry molasses it sure wouldn't hurt anything but uh, I would consider that optional. I think the fertilizer and the compost are the two most important things. Here's the thing about rock phosphate, is when rock phosphate gets mixed with the soil, it becomes ineffective because our alkaline soils tend to kind of neutralize its effect. But rock phosphate is very, very good if you just put a glob of it in the bottom of the hole and let the plants grow their roots down through it, because that way it doesn't get tied up. It remains in a form that plants can really use. Now, I have never seen a huge advantage on wintertime vegetables. I think it really helps with tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and lots of the things we do in the spring. I don't think it's as important, but neither do I think there's anything wrong with it. But rather than put it as part of that, you know, that preparation we're doing i'm actually going to use the rock phosphate at planting time and that way i can just put a glob in the bottom of the hole and i think you'll find it'll be much more effective for you that way mm-hmm. okay if i do the dry molasses how much should i put in that pile a handful okay. <laughs> it's not very exact uh-huh. but somewhere between right. a quarter of a cup and half a yes. cup but uh mm-hmm. when you're a small hand so it probably is a quarter of a <laughs> well that would be just fine okay. i you you don't want to spend a lot of time measuring when you've got a bunch of plants out there ready to go in the ground, and fortunately, you don't have to with organics. Uh, I have been using rock phosphate then in the holes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm getting a lot of rock phosphate, but I do use rock phosphate with my cabbage, cauliflower, and uh, uh-huh. and broccoli. Well, it okay. it helps with root production on everything. It's just in the uh-huh. with our our um, warm weather things. It helps more with the fruit production. But of course, uh-huh. with cabbage and all, we're not looking for fruit. We're looking for good, mm-hmm. healthy vegetative growth. So I think that's just fine. But I I think it's just uh, you're not getting any benefit from uh, uh-huh. blending it in in the initial phase. But putting it in the bottom of the hole is always always productive. Okay. Well, I did worry about that. That I was maybe doing something more harmful than oh, no. beneficial. No, no yeah. harmful. Yeah. It's uh, anything okay. except your bank account, and it might do some slight harm there. Uh huh. Well, these piles have helped. Our soil is old, like everyone says, but I feel like we added some compost this uh, 
this spring after mm-hmm. you know the the winter was over and we came to the shades of green and we bought some ladybug revitalizer that uh-huh. y'all still had we picked up about a 10 or 12 bags <laughs> it helped oh it uh, does it does uh, i just feel like my soil is lacking something My next question, several weeks ago, a listener called and asked about purchasing soil for her raised beds. Mm -hmm. And you suggested just doing a mixture of her own, some of her soil with one-third part compost. And then you suggested adding two other things, and I can't remember those. I think one was lava sand. Lava sand will help with moisture retention. Uh-huh. And um, we might green have all sand, and and green sand will help with uh, iron. Now, in both cases, uh, you don't use nearly as much of lava sand or green sand as you would uh, as you would the compost. But where somebody already has deep soil, just uh-huh. you know, blending compost with the existing soil is mm-hmm. better than anything you can go out and buy. Now, some of us that live on a slab of rock. You know, we have to buy soil to have have anything to work with. But and I tell you, with some recent things that I have read and uh, some discussions with my friend Stuart Frankie from over at Medina, I think I'm going to be suggesting that we add some dry humates where we're looking to make a really good soil mix in the future. And um, uh, it's just there's some real interesting research has come out on humates and how they build the soil. And I know uh, Medina's getting ready to uh, start producing some 20-pound bags of dry humate. They're just waiting on the state to approve their labeling on the bag. But um, I'm with my plantings this fall, I'm experimenting with a little bit of dry humate. And I think in the future that's going to be something that I'm recommending more and more as an addition to soils. Not in large quantities, just in small quantities. But, but for now, I you know, sounds to me like you're doing everything right. And if your garden is producing more and your plants uh, seem to be doing better, I'm not going to tell you to change anything. I'm going to tell you to go right on doing what Beverly's doing. But I would, I I think you're wasting your time with using the rock phosphate in the initial phase. But in the planting phase, I think it'll benefit you. I'm, for the time I put in, I feel like I'm not like the the summer garden is, Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop. Because I don't do well in the summer. I do really good in the fall. And uh, so I might concentrate on that. But the dry you made, would you add that to your piles? Yes. Prior? Yeah, okay. I would. I okay. would. And the lava sand and the green sand, what percentage would you add to that mixture? I would do maybe 10% lava sand and okay. maybe 2 or 3% green sand. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try working on my soil. Last question. Can I still plant turnips for fall? Yes, you certainly can. Yes, you certainly can. Okay. I will do that, and I thank you so much. Well, and I will tell you what I'm going to do with my summer garden, and that's just I'm just going to downsize it. I realize that, you know, with all the things I do, I just it, it's just frustrating to not be able to put the time into it. But I'm simply going to make my summer garden smaller and concentrate on quality rather than quantity. So you might consider that for the summertime as well, because uh, you're always going to, you know, gardening is, is in many ways more fun when the weather's a little bit cooler. But I just can't pass up, pass up a fresh homegrown tomato. But I have decided that... Uh, uh, to aim more quality than quantity, and uh, Beverly might enjoy doing the same. 
I think so, because where we are here in Casterville, it's, we have that south wind mm-hmm. that just dries everything out. I've tried covering. I've tried wrapping. I've tried everything I can think of, and they just don't do well, and it's frustrating. So I, I think I'm going to give up the ghost. Well, we will talk again, and in the and meantime... The spring, right. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, we, we start with Mac right here. Good morning, Mac. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Yeah, I've, talked, I've talked to you, uh, oh, gee, a year ago or so. It's quite a while. I, the guy had a couple Japanese grapefruit trees that were moved and transplanted and rise here after 26 years. Finally, one tree produced... Great. Okay. This was 2017. Yeah. Eight, 18, the, the same tree produced about 20 grapefruit. Okay. The other tree had, had produced nothing. This year, the other tree actually began producing. <laughs> and the first tree is about doubled what it had last year, because I'm working on it harder than I had before, because I knew it was going to do something. Right, do something. right. Uh, Mike, and I'm going to be moving, and these trees are... 35 feet high or so, you know, humongous are not going to be moved by any in, inexpensive means that I can think of. Yeah, no, that so tree I'm, tree that big is almost impossible to move successfully. Anyway, I'm trying to see if we can get something going with seeds. I've saved some. I've heard and looked online, and I know how you feel about looking for stuff online, but every time I look online, I see something different. So as far as seeds go, uh, I guess one question is, do seed, citrus, or otherwise, can they be kept? Can they be dried out and kept for years? Do they still work after so many years? Or I don't. Uh, so I I would hesitate to say several years, but a year or two. You know what you want to do is take the seed out of the fruit. You want mature fruit, then you want to collect the seed. You want to allow the seed to dry. I would like pull it in a put it in a colander or something. Wash any of the. Uh, flesh off of it and then dry it on a piece of parchment put them in a in an envelope or something and seal that envelope up inside of a glass jar of some sort in the refrigerator now we used to just say put seeds in the refrigerator but the modern refrigerators that are frost free they are so drying they are so desiccating to the seed that you uh, uh that you need to you know, put that seed in a jar, and I'm going to tell you, they're going to stay viable for at least two or three years um, after that. Tell me this, um, after you move, will you have access, would you be able to go back and collect something from these trees? Uh, because the reason I ask is, is starting plants from seed, you go through such a long, long process waiting for the trees to mature before they're physiological, physiologically able to produce fruit. And if these trees took that long to begin producing fruit, I worry that it's going to be, you know, half a lifetime before a, a new tree is mature enough. What I would strongly suggest is, uh, maybe, you know, buying a cold hardy satsuma or something like that, and then grafting uh, from your existing tree, because your existing tree is now mature, 
and that wood doesn't have to go through the maturing process again. So I would read up on grafting tropical trees. It's a little bit different than it is in grafting peaches and plums, and I'm not a real expert on that. I um, There are people you can call. You can probably call Larry Stein over at A&M. Uh, the guys over at Phoenix could probably give you his number or give you a contact. But I would sure think about uh, doing some grafting from your existing tree because that way you, would, you wouldn't you would be waiting nearly so long for the fruit. And, of course, when you plant from a seed, you never really know whether that tree is going to come true or whether it's, um, you know, maybe maybe not quite as good or, you know, much smaller chance that it would be better. But Anyway, since these trees are too big to to move, I would sure think about getting some other cold hardy rootstock uh, and grafting, you know, some wood from your tree onto that. And that way, you just kind of don't ever miss out. It'll be a year or two or three before they're big enough to really start making a lot of fruit. But you'd sure have fruit a lot sooner than you would just growing it from seed. Make sense? Uh, it makes sense. I don't know whether I'll have access to the trees once I move. It depends on who ends up living in this house, I guess, for one thing. Sure. Uh, well, uh, you can part of it, you, you can collect some graft wood and wrap it in moist paper towels, put it in, you know, like a Ziploc bag, and you can store it in the refrigerator for a while. But I would talk to someone who does citrus grafting, and um, it may be practical that you can go ahead and uh, collect some graft wood before you move to your new property and, and go ahead and do your grafting uh uh, with wood that you would collect before you move. Okay. Well, again, I may have mentioned it before previously, and I called you. It, this is from my wife who passed away. Mm-hmm. She brought the trees from Japan. Right. And it, it, to take them with us in, in a form of a tree from the seed is symbolic in a way. The food is great, but that's not the most important part, although it would be nice. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a shame they went so long before they produced. Yeah. But uh, and it's a shame she didn't get to, to see all of the production. But, you know, to me, it would be even nicer to be saving an actual piece of the tree uh, that she brought uh, because you're, you know, you're oh, keeping the same. Genetic. It'd be fun to plant some seeds because those would, in effect, be the, the children of the tree that she planted. But it sure would be fun to have uh, some of the tree itself growing, still growing and producing for years to come for you. Well, we'll see what we can do. I appreciate your help, Bob. You have a good one. You do the same, Mac. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. You bet. All right, let's get back to the phone lines, and uh, Gloria is next. Good morning, Gloria. Good morning, Bob. I only have two questions. Okay. I've had larkspurs for about, I don't know, almost 10 years. Yes, I have ma'am. a large yard. Uh-huh. And I don't remember the seedlings sprouting out so soon, so I don't know whether it's those or maybe some kind of weed, but I've got millions on them that are coming through the mulch. Well, uh, would those be the larkspur? They could easily already? be. Yeah, they could easily be the larkspur. When we get a combination of a little bit of cool weather and a little bit of rain, um, yeah, I'll bet you there are larkspurs coming up, and they do come up very, very thickly. You'll be able to tell by the foliage. By the time they get about two inches tall, you'll be able to tell uh-huh. for sure what they are. Okay, so I won't disturb them. Okay, the other thing is I've got four citrus trees, and they're about, I don't know, four or five feet tall. And uh, I was wondering, would I be able to cover them with the uh, 
plastic uh, tarp. Uh, I have some, you know, they're dark. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether they would harm them because light wouldn't go through it. Yeah, or, it they, uh, they wouldn't be the best. Plus, you know, that, that solid material, when the wind hits, uh, it's going to, could potentially break things underneath it. I like a much lighter weight material. And remember with citrus, now satsumas don't have to be protected. Um, lime trees need to be protected. And lemon trees are cold hardy. The Myers lemon's cold hardy to about, tw- down to about 26 degrees. So the limes are the only thing that I'm really going to be worried about protecting right now and maybe the lemons a little bit later. But look for what they call a floating row cover. My favorite brand is called Insulate. It's the letter N, S-U-L-A-T-E. And okay. it is white in color. It is much lighter weight. And because it lets the light through, you can actually leave it on for an extended period of time. You don't have to take it on and off and on and off. But, no, I'm tarps and things like that, that's like tying your tree to a parachute. That wind hits it, it's likely to do all kinds of damage. And, um, like I say, it may not even be necessary if you have things like satsumas. They're colder hardy down into the teens, so um, probably don't even need to worry about protecting those most winters. Okay, well, I'm glad you said that I have a satsuma, and I have two Meyer lemons Uh and a navel orange. I don't have any limes. So in your opinion, I don't have to worry about any of them? No, I would would protect the navel orange, and if it's going to be really cold, I would protect the Meyer's lemon. But satsuma, I don't think you're ever going to have to worry about. Okay, by really cold, you mean under uh, 20 degrees? Under, no, probably under about 26 degrees. Myers Lemon's cold hardy down to about 26 degrees. Okay. All right, Bob. Thank you very much. I appreciate your help. You're welcome, Gloria. I appreciate your call. Thank you. All right, let's finish up the hour with Ricky Bobby. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. I've only got a couple of things for you. Okay. First of all, out here at Pop's Place in West Bear County for 45 years, he gardened. Now he's 90, okay. and we, he doesn't anymore, but I've tried to pick up a few things, just the two of us left. And uh, we have volunteer garlic and asparagus. Okay. And I seem to recall that somewhere along the lines, to get that asparagus to really do well, I need to clip it near the ground Sometime during the winter, I think it's in January or something like that. Are you familiar with that? Well, here's the thing about asparagus. As long as it has green foliage on it, it's building a bigger, stronger root system. And, um, you know, I would let it grow if we have a winter when it stays green. I would let it go up until probably the middle of January. And the only real reason we clip it back is because it will start producing new shoots pretty shortly after that, and it'll produce a lot more. But now, if it freezes back, and a lot of asparagus, my asparagus froze back this week uh, because we were down in the middle 20s, and once it's frozen, you might as well cut it back any time. But if it hasn't frozen by the middle of January, I would cut it back then. But uh, you can cut it back as soon as it freezes, uh, if it you know, if okay. it freeze earlier than that. Yes, sir. Yeah, I did clip it two years ago, and it produced a lot of spears. Yes, sir. And I wasn't able to work it last year because I'm getting a new hip on Monday, but mm. I'll be able to work it good this winter. Ah, it's a and wonderful then, thing. Great. <laughs> and then my uh, 
Second question has to do with, since I do have all this good garden plot out here, is there any chance that I could grow an avocado tree? If you want to grow an avocado tree, you would need to get one of what they call the Mexican avocados. They make a very tasty, good avocado. The avocados may look a little different. In some of them, uh, actually, the skin is a combination of bright gold and black. Others may be a little bit different shaped. But the thing about Mexican avocados is once they start producing that hard, rough bark, they're very cold-hardy. Uh, but for okay. the first year or two, while they still have smooth bark, you need to cover them the same way you would a, a lime or, you know, an orange or something like that. But, yes, sir, I think you could. I would probably wait until, uh, since you're going to have a little bit of rehab to go through, I wouldn't plant one until a little bit later, maybe even early spring, and then just watch it. As long as it has smooth bark, it will need winter protection once it develops that harder, rougher bark where you are, you'll probably never have to protect it again, and uh, you'll get a good uh, good avocado crop. They're not going to be the giant things like the calavos and the haas that you get in the grocery store, but they're going to be tasty and good and prolific. That's what I need. I appreciate your help and love the show. Well, I appreciate your call. Good luck on that surgery, and uh, you'll come out of it uh, feeling like a new man, I hope, and get back to all the things you used to enjoy doing. I hope so. Thank you much, Bob. Have yes, a good sir. Weekend. You do, too. Thank you. But right now, we have the vis- the pleasure of visiting with uh, Mr. Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor. Good morning, Howard. Burr, it's cold here. <laughs> it was heavy frost again this morning. We were down in the middle 20s a couple of days earlier this week, and uh sounds like y'all have had about the same. Yeah, we had the same thing. I had a little frost on the roof this morning. It wasn't uh, freezing, but uh, you... I don't totally understand how that happens, but we did have some frost. <laughs> Somebody gave me a very scientific explanation one time, and I, I think they said that there were, uh, you know, like five different kinds of frost, some of which could occur, and the physics of it all was a little bit beyond me. But uh, I do know it can be very damaging to tender foliage, especially when it comes following a long warm period. Well, we had some. We had uh, like you had there, mid twenties, low twenties, actually, and and some damage. I wrote a, my column, the next column that's going to appear, assuming that uh, they get it this time. The last time I sent one in, they didn't get it, and it <laughs> ran a week later, <laughs> a week late. But I wrote about the uh, damage. We had, you know, a, close to a fifty degree drop in in t- close to twenty four hours again, yeah. which does a lot of cosmetic damage and probably some serious damage, too. I wrote about the fact that the main thing is cosmetic damage. My ginkgo is going to have another year of just almost no good fall color at all. It just mm. it just fries the leaves on the on the uh, tree, the little ones and the and the big one too. It's going to have a little bit of fall color, but not that much. There'll, there'll still be some fall color with the red oaks, but I'd, I'd say... Uh, 30 to 40 percent of what was coming on and looking like it was going to be really nice fall color this wow. year has been ruined by the uh, by that one day. Well, and and Roberta texted me on her way in that she had 25 degrees at her house this morning, so it's oh, wow. uh, 
Uh, and we had that kind of temperature two or three days earlier in the week. And let me tell you, it was not pleasant. Combine that with a light mist. It was not serious ice on the roads, but on the bridges. We had one day down here that uh, fortunately was a day off for me. <laughs> I didn't have to get out and play with all those other crazy people sliding into each other and the guardrails and everything else. But it just seems like this is early. I, maybe we say that every time it happens. But here we are almost two weeks before Thanksgiving getting uh kind of weather we normally get in january it's it's been an unusual year to say the least no i think uh it's definitely early and uh it uh, a lot of the you know annuals and perennials are just completely gone i'm telling mm-hmm. people to get everything cut back there's probably not a whole lot of serious damage i think most things will come out but my little ginkgos it's going to in pots it's going to be interesting to see because they really got got fried i i don't think uh, there's permanent damage, but uh, all you can do is just wait and wait and see. I tell people to be patient and not do a lot of pruning and other you know things until you see what happens with the buds and the new growth in the spring. Sure. Well, and ginkgo, of course, comes from a, a climate, a part of the world that traditionally is substantially colder than this. So. I would anticipate it would the trees would be just fine. It's a shame you lose the fall color because ginkgo just happens has to be for yellow colors. It has to be just a real champion because having seen yours and it's not just the trees that's beautiful, but when it starts shedding all those leaves and I know you've got plenty of pictures. I've seen them on DirtDoctor dot com and uh, other places, but it's a spectacular tree. So yeah, um, and they, it's one of the trees where the leaves keep their color on the ground for a mm-hmm. long time. I have a hard time uh, getting the guys that help me maintain things around here to leave them on the ground for at least a week <laughs> or so. But yeah, it's, the dogs love playing in it, and it's all that, all kinds of good things. But we're not going to have much this year. I think, I think that well, my I got a pretty good size uh, Mexican buckeye in mm-hmm. the front yard, and I was noticing when I went out to get the paper this morning that. Even though it got a lot of the foliage knocked off, the wind was yep. as, as bad as the temperature, but it still has some uh, real pretty yellow color this year. Oh, same with my Buckeyes. And uh, like you say, the wind the wind was the biggest influence. But the, the sumacs, the flame sumacs have been pretty nice. And, uh, of course, down here not many people are fond of tallows because they can be a bit invasive. But I just I don't worry about invasives in the urban landscape. They're probably something that I wouldn't plant out in the country where they might get out of hand but uh uh good old chinese tallow is is still one of our reddest trees around in the fall months so i don't know i just i like things that give us a little color at least some years and this year well we'll see yeah the uh, i i can see right now why people are so uh, a lot of people are still recommending a lot of people want to plant the chinese pistache so mm-hmm. much and i've been you know, warning against it because of the females, but they really do get pretty. There's, there's, they've got some really good color right now. Oh, I guess we can't all hop on a plane and run up to New England and see what real fall color looks like. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it, it is. They are still beautiful. And uh, and like you say, it's interesting. And you have to wonder if the trees actually change sexes. And I, I think they do. I, you know, because everybody was selling everything from, uh, you know, uh, male-only ginkgo trees. And I think yours was, you acquired it under that name. And same thing's true on the Chinese pistache. People say, oh, no, you can plant a male tree and it won't ever have fruit. And lo and behold, later 10 years down the road, they start producing fruit in quantity. 
Maybe. I, I haven't looked into that tree specifically, but it's a, there's a pretty good chance because if one tree, if ginkgo does it, you you would, and papaya does it for sure, you, yeah. you'd think that other plants would have that ability as well. By the way, I, I finally got around to reading that article you sent me on uh, humic acid. Um, I, I made my a decision on what I thought about it by seeing who wrote it, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I got into it, and it was interesting to see. That that guy sells a product. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that or not. No. And I, he badmouths uh, other forms of of applying organic materials to the soil. I had a run-in with him some years ago. Oh, really? By him getting uh, upset, or not upset, but right, just going kind of ballistic about how worthless dry molasses was. That was oh. one of experiences with him and i don't know if you noticed in that article but he badmouthed compost well yeah i was a little surprised that he he you know doesn't feel like it's all that effective and we've used it to such such you know good benefit and it's you know it's like everything else i you, you need to know something about the author and you need to know something about your personal experience i i did not know that about him and uh um, I, you know, I'll, I'll go back and reread, uh, the things that well, still, he's a smart guy and he's, he's come up with a good product and uh-huh. does some good things, but why he has to lash out at, at other techniques and all, there's just so many ways, you know, if, if what he says is correct, the forests and the prairies would be in pretty bad shape mm-hmm. because of the humus in those two situations comes from, uh, falling debris from right. the plants and I think, and, and and you know, we both teach this uh, a lot. One of the best things you can do, and the most cost-effective things you can do, especially if you have acres, is put shredded uh, native tree trimmings uh, on the ground. They are close. They're as close to a perfect organic amendment and fertilizer as, as you can come up with. You mm-hmm. know? And they certainly produce uh, quality humus and uh, humic acid and folic acid and all the other things. That's how nature uh, works. So you just, you just have to kind of look at you know what the the angle is when people write about something and, and a big part of it is oh I've got a product that's a whole lot better than anything <laughs> else in the world. Well, I did not realize that, but I I. You know, got some, uh, as I mentioned to you, and I've got some to share with you when we get together later this month, but um, uh, Stuart uh, did some of this very, very finely powdered humate, and I've got a couple of experiments going in my own landscape, and I've got some bottles for you to take back and, yeah, and try. Yeah, I look forward to trying that. That's and that's, that's the only way I know to do is just do it side by side, some with and some without, and see if we see a measurable change. And these happen to be new beds, so my basic vegetable garden, I've been, I've been organic in there for so long that it's hard to really see anything improve because the soil's already in such good shape. But I've got a couple of new beds that have not been nearly so intensively cared for over the years, and that's where I'm trying the humates. And uh, I have some side-by-side pictures come spring, so I'll look forward to sharing those. And uh, uh, experience is still the best teacher of all. Yeah, I think that that's going to be maybe a really useful tool. And what that does is just speeds up the that you know that's what good products do is just speed up the process. Mm-hmm. You know, the nature will take care of itself 
you know, all by itself, if you just allow it to happen, don't screw it up by using things that hurt the biological activity. But uh, a fine textured material that uh, is, you know, good quality to start with could be a very val- valuable tool. And the main thing is detoxifying contaminated soil. That's right. the thing that's going to be the most effective on well, and this is so fine. I mean, you could, you could, it wouldn't go into solution, but it would go into suspension. I think this would very definitely be a sprayable material as well. Uh, back to the article for one second. The one, and in, in if he is accurate, the one misconception according to that that I had that humates uh, were used up, uh, and and he makes it sound like the the true humates can remain in the soil for a long time kind of mediating things and interacting with uh, mycorrhizal fungi and i had always thought of them as uh, as i do with uh, compost and things like that they're great soil builders but they're most effective if you keep adding them year after year you keep making things better and better and better and he was acting like the humate is more stable in the soil than i ever realized so that that'll be interesting to see how that works out well, the the bottom line on it is that all organic matter breaks down in, into humus as one of the components of right. that breakdown, and all humus contains humic acid and fulvic acid and all the other other things. It's just a, a matter of how quickly uh, yep. you want things to work is the uh, is the deal. I I don't have any problem with the positive things uh, that he says, but being negative about compost and molasses and, and a lot of other things that uh, we all use and that he doesn't sell is yeah. not, not <laughs> well i not and i i totally agree with you on that because uh this time of year i know i so strongly support putting compost out on grasses and i'm not sure the exactly the mode of action but i think it has a very strong pre-emergent uh weed oh, preventing effect too I think so. I think it probably is, it works kind of the same way that the corn gluten meal does. Corn gluten meal is probably just a little more concentrated. Right. By it. We sometimes see such great results with it. Yeah. The next thing I'm writing about is leaf management. You know, the thing that happened with our uh, little 50-degree change of weather is that we've got about half of the leaves down already. Yep. And they'll continue now for several weeks. And well, I you know read your first article, and uh, I, it's something that you know organic gardeners have known for years, and uh, there's just so many different things to do with leaves. I think just for me, just mulching them up and leaving them in place is best. But I think I told you we uh, were at the Atlanta Botanical Garden one time, and they had actually over some of their more tender perennials and some fairly young trees they built like a cage just out of inexpensive wire and just filled them up with leaves just four feet of leaves sitting down in that cage on top of the plant and said it was just some of the best insulation they could possibly do on deciduous plants yeah that's probably a really good technique i uh, i enjoy the leaves laying around some people don't you know frank lloyd wright uh with his architecture he one of the points he had that uh, I think bothered a lot of people. He actually believed in leaving the doors open a lot of times and so that the leaves could blow into the house. <laughs> that, that was just part of the, you know, his organic architecture. <laughs> so, I don't know how many people would agree with that, but that was one of his uh, beliefs. 
Well, those of us that have puppy dogs don't have to leave the doors open. I mean, they bring right. in plenty of, plenty of them with them every time they come through the door. Right. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Well, I, it's, and, and one thing that Malcolm told me years ago that's always stuck with me is that the trees with their extensive root system are bringing up minerals that may be way down in the ground and other, and other uh, organic materials, too, that... The roots of your your smaller plants probably never reach down deep enough to get, and that the trees that was Mother Nature's way of naturally remineralizing the soil, bringing up some of those things that are further down, and then just depositing them right back on the surface of the ground. And uh, that's why it's so foolish the people that want to rake them up or blow them and put them out by the street. It's just very foolish. Yeah, it really bothers me, and I'm seeing a lot of it right now. A lot of big old plump bags laying around for the cities to pick up, you know, where people are uh, are bagging them. I think in most cases those are their lawn care people doing it, and, yeah. and the homeowners don't pay enough attention to what's going on to you know stop it from happening. But we we do pick up some of ours because we've got such an ex, ex, uh, excess <laughs> amount and uh, we put it, we grind them up and we put them back in the back where we're still building up sure. back there but we, sure. we've got that erosion area to a point now where you can go through the gate and walk behind the fence and and walk back there and it used to be just a you know a straight drop off from the fence and was about to all cave in so we've we've used them in a little bit at least a percentage of the leaves in a in a different way well and it's you're still benefiting the soil and uh, i still get people that tell me oh now you don't want to use pecan and walnut leaves and things like that and i think that's very false as well i don't know of any leaves that i don't think work fine in compost and this business about them having too much tannic acid or something i've never seen a problem with using those leaves have you well, <clears throat> there's one place where you can get in trouble with that, and that is if you had nothing but walnut leaves, uh-huh. which you would, I don't know where that would ever exist, but if you had nothing but walnut leaves and you made, uh, you ground them up and put them in the vegetable garden mm-hmm. or, you, or made a compost with them, there, there is a problem with that. And the problem is that walnut has a chemical called juglans, and juglans uh, will uh, does have some damage uh, damaging effects to one group of plants, and they're the nightshades, mm. <laughs> the peppers, <laughs> tomatoes, and eggplants, and tobacco. Uh, but if you mix walnut leaves with other things, yep. I, there's no problem. It's really an interesting deal. The only way you could yeah. really get in trouble with it is if you had walnuts growing around the vegetable garden. And I've gotten that's how. I've learned about this, uh, people with walnut leaves adjacent to the vegetable garden, and that's the main thing they're using, uh-huh. and the debris is falling from the walnut trees in there, it definitely will affect the uh, the nightshade plant. Well, that's interesting, because I have a pretty big, you know, black walnut, Juglans niger, niger, I believe is the botanical yep. name of it, yep. and I guess it's because I have so many other leaves, because it's, it's certainly the closest tree to my garden, and I've I've never seen a problem with it, but it, again, it's probably because it's blended in with so many other things. Yeah. If it's mixed with other leaves, it doesn't seem to be a problem at all. It's really a really a curious thing. But to do an experiment, and we probably ought to do that just to show show people that we ought to uh, make a, a compost, a mulch, and a compost out of 100% walnut, and use it on these plants. And this is something Malcolm would have done great. <laughs> 
and then on these, you know, use all the other leaves, and it definitely will make a, a difference. But just on the uh, just on the nightshades, for some curious reason, that is that is interesting. <laughs> I always laugh. I you know miss old Malcolm so much, but I I love the fact at one point he hired the former extension agent from New Braunfels to come and analyze some of his experiments because he said I have to say people tend to tell me that I tend to get the results that I expect. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes maybe we maybe we do need that independent set of eyes looking at it but that you know then maybe one of these days if i ever have time i'll i certainly have the leaves and have the tree the tree to do it my biggest fear about that tree because walnuts tend to be a little bit prone to storm damage as they get older and this tree is probably 20 inches in diameter so hope it sticks around long and a, a bit at least a while longer yeah, if you've uh, got that tree handy, just get get some leaves and, and munch them up and make them in uh, a pretty big part of a potting soil and plant some small uh, nightshades in yeah. one and, and then the other. Use a regular potting soil, and you might uh, see something that would, that would help us all. That would be that would be real interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll add it to my list of projects. And uh, some of these cold days like this week, I spent a lot more time in the greenhouse than I normally would because it was the warmest place around my property and even warmer than my house. So that's uh, that'll be another good experiment to do. Um, have you ever grown fava beans? I have never grown fava beans, and I had a caller this morning telling me that they seem in uh, their garden seem to be totally cold hardy. They've come through these mid twenties with no damage whatsoever. Yeah, it's more of a cool. I did grow it one year just uh-huh. for fun, and uh, it, it's a cool season uh, bean and can and kind of neat looking little plant. Pretty interesting to grow. Yeah, you ought to give it a give it a shot. I I can't remember if I even ended up with any um, beans to eat. I, I get so many different things going, and they overgrow each other. <laughs> but I, I have grown it, and it grew really well for me here and down so it grows more like a pea really than than yeah. a than a bean i mm-hmm. well I, I again i love learning and it's just one of those things i've never tried growing so um i don't know if i'll get it planted this year but i'll certainly give it a try in the future because again being a legume it certainly would be good for the soil whether you got whether you actually got very many beans out of it or not yeah, give it give it a shot. It's kind of a curious, uh, interesting, fun little plant to grow. So I I've been spending so little time in my vegetable garden with all my art stuff going on. We had our first show last night in two different places and had had a lot of fun. Uh, it was been a little hectic getting ready for it, but <laughs> I need to get back to my garden now and get it back in uh, decent shape. Biggest problem I've got out there, and I got some guys to come over. And helped me with it a couple of days ago was that the uh, Carolina snail seed mm-hmm. had just come up like a ground cover all over the place. That we've talked about it before, but that is just without question the most uh, invasive, serious weed problem that, that I've uh, ever experienced. And it's woody enough that uh, the vinegar and orange oil will burn it back, but it doesn't kill it out. It's something you just have to keep after. You got to get the woody uh, stems, underground stems, out for the most part, and then you can kill the, what comes up, and it'll come up from the smallest little pieces that you can imagine. And when it's doing that, you can spray and kill it with the with the organic herbicides. Yeah, yeah. the first step, just like poison ivy, really, sure. is you got to get that that woody system out of the ground because its stored energy just keeps uh, 
throwing up growth forever. Oh, man, it's, that's one of those things you wish our, our plants that we want to grow, if they grew half as well as that stuff does, would yeah. be would yeah. be in great shape. The one other thing that I told the caller I would ask you about was uh, if uh, you've heard of anything new in the world of uh, controlling cut ants, because uh, they lots of, lots of people, especially when you get down to the sandier soils south of San Antonio, uh, the leaf-cutting ants um, can be a real issue in vegetable gardens and uh, places like that, and they're just pretty darn difficult to control sometimes. We've, we've used sulfur. I have a caller who says that he found that simply flooding the mounds had uh, gotten them at least to move out and go somewhere else. Do you have anything specific that uh, your callers have shared with you uh, as far as being effective against leaf-cutting ants? Well, the growers that have had success with it that I know did the flooding deal. Uh-huh. They built a they built a small dam and actually just you know filled a, a, a contained area up and flooded and caved it in and, and oh. got rid of them. If you did that and added one, you know, some essential oil or orange oil or sure, you know, sulfur or whatever you want to use to it, that's probably the best of, of both worlds. They, uh, I've had some success with just irritating them enough to get them to go somewhere else, using the cedar flakes in the areas where the little trails are and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. They just tend to go somewhere else because they don't like that condition. doesn't kill them, but yep. uh, it's, a, it's a good repellent and, you know, good for the soil anyway, so... Well, and in our area, they you know they love to eat that uh, smilax, that old thorny stuff, and I don't I don't fool with them if they're out away from the house. And fortunately, I've never really had to deal with them in the vegetable garden, so I'm not always the best person to ask. But uh, I'll certainly pass. Well, you've just passed it along, and I'm sure it benefited a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's one of the tougher insects to control. There's no question uh, about it. We we played around with several different things, products that are really high in silica, mm-hmm. and silica is good for the uh, soil anyway, I think are worth trying uh, as, as well. Um, you know, the, the DE can help some. Nothing is foolproof, but right. you, maybe using a little bit of these several different techniques is, is good, but the cedar and then flooding the beds are two of, two of the things that seem to work the best. Well, I will I'd certainly continue to pass that along and i just continue to be more and more impressed all the time with some of our herbal oils and how effective they are against most of the problems we face and i also believe more and more that stress plants are just so much more susceptible to different insects and attacked by different things that just through good culture <laughs> we have a whole lot less to deal with and the herbal oils and some of the new products out there are just really good to have just really good defense against them you know, one of the things I did for ants, I had uh, powder post ants working on the base of a wood sculpture that I did in my art studio. <laughs> and, okay. You know, having little piles of sawdust uh-huh. on the table and everything. And I, I said, well, why don't you do what you recommend to other people? And so I painted the, I've got the wood sculpture on top of a, a stump. It's a uh-huh. piece of a bur oak that uh, came out of my front yard. And I just painted orange oil on it and let it soak in, and, man, they're gone. And that's something that I've recommended to people if they have powder post beetles, uh, you know, on the porch or on their in their firewood or whatever, mm-hmm. just a little orange oil. They flat go away. <clears throat> and, and, you know, it, it works the same way on carpenter 
ants if you have it in the house too. There's probably nothing that, that uh, repels uh, the carpenter ants better than orange oil. And and we've certainly found that with them. I'm I'm sitting here kind of laughing because I took uh, Roberta and Ed a load of firewood. And it was a combination of pecan and a big oak, uh, Spanish oak, that came down in one of the storms. And I don't know which one, but she was telling me there's quite a pile of quite a pile of that sawdust underneath the wood bin now. So I'll certainly be recommending that she get some orange oil out after that. But uh, well, it's we, not that big a deal yeah. in, the, in the firewood, but it's just a good educational thing to see how well it works if you really need to keep them away from something else. And, you know, I don't know that we've really done. Uh, as much experimentation as we should have with the uh, with the leaf cutter ants mm-hmm. uh, with orange oil, you know, it might be more uh, effective than than we know too. So, if people have them, that they probably ought to give that a shot. And if you use the orange oil in the flooding, that really will work well. I'm almost positive. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about orange oil is it's as orange oil is so much more available. And, uh, again, we, we like the Medina's brand. They seem, and Stuart was complaining about how high the price has gone on it. But it's a lot easier to find orange oil than it is find just straight rosemary or thyme or so many of the other really good herbal oils. You can find them made into different products. But I love the fact that we can just buy straight orange oil and then we can mix it with vinegar for weed control. We can use it directly for borer control. Plus, it's a heck of a good cleaner around the house. I'm a big fan of orange oil. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) terrific. I guess that price and availability is based on crop failures or crop successes, I I would assume. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, it will be available here for a while before being knocked out by freezes. I don't know if this last freeze got down into the citrus uh, growing uh, fields or not. I haven't heard. Well, I think a lot of it's coming out of South America now because they apparently have uh, real good citrus production and uh, orange oil has come to be recognized as a very valuable byproduct of it. Worldwide, I you know, I haven't heard a lot. All you hear is the the bad news about citrus greening, and people make that out to be such a problem. But quite frankly, we have not really heard that much about it. I know Texas Department of Agriculture is, you know, they're kind of going overboard on trying to keep it from spreading. And uh, I think you and I both feel that they can probably control it with hydrogen peroxide and other things. But worldwide, I remember a few years ago they told us lethal yellowing was going to wipe out all the all the palms in the world, and it has had a significant effect at all. And I'm kind of feeling that way about the citrus greening, but I'm I'm hearing other people that say, "Oh no, no, it's a serious problem in Central and South America." But what have you heard anything about that? Well, yeah, but the the sick tree treatment will, will take care of it. It's no it's no problem. It, yeah, it's just that people need to. Uh, you know, give the organic thing a, a shot. W- one place we had the uh, art show, we started at a, a wine bar, and then we moved it to uh, to our office. And the wine bar <laughs> owner was talking to me, and we were going to do a, a wine tasting coming up uh-huh. with all organic wines. He's got some real good contacts. And he was talking about the fact that several of the wineries, uh, the vineyards in the wineries now, are doing organics 
but they're not talking about mm-hmm. it. They're just doing it because, yeah. because they've discovered it works better. Fetzer apparently has been, I, I know this, uh, they've been doing it for a long time and keeping it kind of close to their vest because they discovered how well it worked. Right. And, and they didn't <laughs> want to have the bureaucracy and the red tape and everything of the, the certified organic uh, deal. So there's more of that going on than um, a lot of times we realize. But I think that the sick tree treatment will handle that just like uh, oak wilt or yeah. rose rosette or whatever you're uh, talking about. It's all the same uh, procedure, all the same uh, way of you know making uh, the uh, the plants healthy by getting the soil healthy, getting the mycorrhizae growing again, and releasing the stress on the on the plant. It's just amazing how resilient nature is if we just do things nature's way instead of. Uh, uh, some of the dumb things, <laughs> some of the dumb practices that still go on, and um, I, we just keep spreading the word. Well, I'm glad your art shows went well, and I know that's good for Torque as well. So uh, we'll look forward to even more pictures on uh, DirtDoctor.com soon, I hope. We will uh, see you next week. Enjoyed it as always. You guys uh, enjoyed the uh, crazy up and down <laughs> weather. We'll, we'll talk again. I'll sure look forward to it, Howard. As always, you guys have a great week, and uh, we'll visit next weekend. And hopefully, hopefully, we'll have uh, spring back here for a little while at least. Thanks, Bob. Thank see you, you sir. All right, bye. Tower Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, and uh, of course, DirtDoctor.com is one of the very best websites on the internet. Four good information that's very applicable to this area. And when you're thinking about books to give for Christmas, uh, let me tell you, the books that Howard has done and the books that he did in conjunction with Malcolm Beck a few years ago, still some of the best things you will find anywhere as far as literature that's applicable to this area. So uh, you know what, good gardeners, uh, and I think you can get a lot of the books directly off DirtDoctor.com now if you don't find them at your favorite nursery. We try to keep them on the shelf, but um, sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes I know we do get a little bit low. Remind you once again, speaking of the nursery, we've got Donna's seminar on creating combination pots today. And if you've never seen this lady work, I tell you, it's just absolutely amazing. Free charge, seminars 945. Coffee will be on uh, by 9. All right, well, let's get back to gardening. And uh, phone lines are open. Have time for a few calls here. And uh, we're going to, first of all, talk to Dustin. Good morning, Dustin. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, I sir. Called you a while back about grass in San Antonio, and right. you rightfully recommended uh, uh, Floricham in sunny areas and Palmetto in the not sunny areas. And I was all set to order that, and a buddy of mine was like, "No, you need FJ Select." Um, and I, I tried to research FJ Select, and I called um, the Ag Extension Office. And, and they hadn't heard of it, and so I wanted to get your opinion on it because I can't find any reliable, objective information. I have never heard of it either. <laughs> so okay. I uh, was this uh, a new hybrid St. Augustine that's supposed to have come out somewhere? Or where where um, did you hear about according it? According to the interwebs, it's a um, Texas A&M number one recommended. It grows a little bit shorter, um, but, yeah, it's a hybrid St. Augustine. And, uh, yeah, that's, I figured couldn't find anything objective on Google and the ag extension didn't know, but Bob might know. Well, <laughs> I, I'm very surprised the extension service didn't know because they are part of the Texas A&M network. 
I will tell you, just based on many years' experience, is that when A&M comes out with a new variety, it is always the absolute best thing that ever came along and is the only thing that a person should plant. And it's amazing how many of those things, five years down the road, turned out to be not the very best thing, and all of a sudden you don't hear about them anymore. And it's um, it's, it's kind of like the weathermen. They don't ever apologize for their mistakes. So uh, that's interesting because a couple of years ago, A&M was all gung-ho about something they called Amerishade. And before that, it was, I've forgotten what it was, but it seems like the newest and best ever seems to reoccur every year or two. And um, it's kind of like... Uh, we won't mention Mr. Parsons by name, but his rodeo tomatoes. You know, every year you'd think that that was the only tomato to plant in the garden. And somehow mm-hmm. a year or two later, some of them have stuck around, but many of them have turned out to, shall we say, not live up to their billing. But, I, I again, I have to be totally honest. It may be a great grass, but I can promise mm-hmm. you two things. It will be harder to find being brand new, and it will be more expensive being brand new. So things I tend to talk about are things that I've had personal experience with. And those, uh, the two varieties that we talked about, the Palmetto and the, uh, and the Floritam, are, are two that have truly stood the test of time. Now, neither one of them is perfect. Neither one of them will do in every situation. But Floritam was developed uh, largely as a grass for coastal areas because it was so resistant to chinch bug damage. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's just, and it is more drought tolerant. It is a coarser grass. It's not nearly as pleasant to walk on barefoot, but for the person that's got the sunny yard, a limited water supply, but still wants a grass that is green through most of the winter and doesn't get chiggers, I just don't think it can be beaten. And in the shade, I kind of feel the same way about Palmetto and about Del Mar, and they are both semi-dwarf grasses, so uh, neither one of them are going to need as much mowing either but uh show me something that's been around for a few years that has been widely grown seems to do well in every area and that's what i'm going to be recommending until i find something better so maybe as little time passes uh, as we learn more about this fj select uh, maybe it'll turn out to be a really good thing or it may just kind of go by the way like so many others have so uh, uh i just tell you honestly i have no experience with it it might be the greatest thing out there but i would uh anytime you see something new if you decide to try it try it in a very limited area <laughs> and that way you won't have a major problem to deal with if it turns out to not quite live up to its billing Okay. Well, Bob, as always, thank you so much for the the good, honest advice. Well, and you do the same for me. If you learn more about it and uh, would like to share with me and 50,000 other people, you know, I always welcome your call, Dustin. Okay. Thank you very much, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Trey. Good morning, Trey. Yes, sir. I had a quick question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm getting getting ready to redo some flower beds, and do you recommend putting a weed mat down? Or what what would be your suggestion? No weed mat. No weed mat. If you feel like you need to try to suppress weeds, put down several layers of newspaper or cardboard. Those will do as good a job. Those weed block fabrics tend to totally destroy the soil underneath them. And long term, you really want your plants to be able to put their roots well down into the soil. So I do not like weed block 
uh, products at all. But like I say, you know, 10 layers of newspaper, three layers of cardboard, you'll accomplish the same thing. And long term, you'll have much better results. All right. I greatly appreciate it. Is that all you need today? Yes, sir. Well, one other quick question. If you have time, I've got some big agave plants that I'm going to transplant into that flower bed. They're in pots now. Okay. How how would you suggest doing that? Uh, What would be your thought there? Very, very carefully. And um, just remember that agaves, after they bloom, they tend to die back. As they do so, they produce many, many little small plants around the edge. Great time to transplant. Uh, Keep in mind that the variegated ones are not as cold-hardy. But uh, take them out of pots, put them in the ground, that's sort of a no-brainer. As long as you got good drainage and good sun, you'll do extremely well with them. All right. Well, that fixes me up. I really appreciate it. And you be careful with them. Uh, we'll talk again, Trey.